0: What a great and glorious hymn that is to sing on this day. It would be glorious to sing any day, but it's glorious to sing it this day in light of what our scripture says, which is a reminder of what Christ has done for us with a view that He is coming again, and what a glorious thought and thing that is to know is coming one day. And so the author of Hebrews wants to encourage us with that, and he has a reason for using that today, which we'll come to Uh, in our third point. But we're back in Hebrews chapter 9 for our final time. This will be the final sermon in chapter 9. Uh, We've been in this chapter for a short time compared to some of the others, Uh, but we've seen the theology build over time, so uh, it helps to not have to necessarily go verse by verse through it in terms of a a verse a week or something. Uh, But we want to look at it carefully because the Holy Spirit has included all these words for a reason. There's something here this text is telling us Some people I know feel that Hebrews is repetitive, but there's a reason that the Holy Spirit feels it needs to be said again and again and again and again until you fully grasp it, what Christ has done for His people. And so we want to look at that. We recognize that um, the whole of Scripture and of Hebrews tells us that Christ came on a messianic mission. The Incarnation was in service to that. When we talk about those doctrines of the Incarnation, the hypostatic union that Christ became a man, fully God, fully man. Uh, all of these things, they're in service to what he accomplished, right? It's necessary for what he came to accomplish. We have looked at that over and over again, that if he wasn't truly and fully God and truly and fully man, he couldn't be the perfect mediator of this covenant. He couldn't die for our sins. He couldn't rise from the dead. He couldn't sit enthroned in the heavenly sanctuary as priest and king. All these things are dependent on Him as the unique God-man, the Son of God, only begotten Son of the Father. He is the one and only one who could accomplish this. So Hebrews has been saying this in many ways throughout its pages, but uh, this is really the heart of the letter, bringing all that together to say, think of the significance of it. And the author of Hebrews wants to answer a few final objections that are anticipated. But this ninth chapter has been all about what the Old Testament pointed to. Uh, the Old Testament tabernacle, covenantal system, sacrificial system, even, if you will, Yom Kippur as the high day, if you will, of that system. He says it all pointed to Christ. It all pointed to Him. It all was in preparation for Him to come and to do the work that He alone could do. It was there to prepare us, our hearts and minds, that we might see the need for it. That's the point. If the old covenant system was enough, then God would have stuck with it. That's more or less what Paul says in Galatians 2.21, right? If righteousness cometh by law, Christ died in vain. He didn't need to come. He didn't need to die. But he didn't die in vain because what Paul is really telling us is that old covenant system was never the end. It was pointing to Christ. And so we've been through that, I pray, sufficiently to see. But all of this is pointing out that Uh, The Old Testament was really showing us Christ in some hidden form, uh, if you will. It's what Augustine said, you know, that the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and that uh, it's Christ reveals it to us in the New Covenant. The Old Testament is revealed in the New Covenant. And so again, we see all of that coming together and we see what author has said about it. But we want to see today that he emphasizes one final time that Christ's atonement was necessary that it was the, a singular event, it wasn't something to be repeated over and over again. Now, I think most of us recognize that, but we live in a world that doesn't fully recognize that. Uh, part of what happens in the Catholic Church week after week is a Mass. It is the re-sacrificing of Jesus over and over again. And we say, if you read Hebrews, you see it's unnecessary. It's pointless to do that because it makes it clear what Christ did was done once and cannot be repeated again. There's no reason to repeat it again. It, makes, it doesn't avail anything to try to repeat it. In fact, it would be saying in some way that it's insufficient, and we don't want to say that. And so, again, looking at this, we want to see what our author says today. So I will to read the text one more time, and then we will walk through these last few verses. Therefore, meaning based on what he just argued that we looked at last Sunday... Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, meaning earthly sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He would then have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Amen. So as we look at this text today, I want us to look at three points. First of all, entering the holy place. In fact, entering the holiest place. Second of all, offering the perfect sacrifice. And third, appearing a second time. We've been looking over the past several weeks that our author has found a great visual aid in Yom Kippur. He just keeps saying to people who likely saw these ministrations, many Hebrew Christians that at some time in their life went to Jerusalem and saw Yom Kippur Fulfilled, if you will, in front of them. They saw something of it. And remember, all males were required to go back to Jerusalem for these big events, these big festivals. And so many of them had seen this play out. And he says to them, To those who have seen it, it's an illustration of what Christ has done. And we've been walking through that for quite some time, haven't we? He's been playing on every aspect of this, on how. Uh, Christ is the one who's taken outside the camp, and that has a Yom Kippur tie-in. And he also says, oh, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't avail perfectly. That's a reference to Yom Kippur. But to this spotless lamb, it does avail. The high priest on Yom Kippur can enter into the Holy of Holies once per year at the command of God after sacrifices for his own sins. But that's unlike what our king does in some sense, because he enters eternally like once ever, and he remains there. And that's going to be important to the picture today. So again, there are similarities, but they point to the greatness of what Christ has accomplished. Now, the reason he sees this as a great illustration is because it is. I think the argument of Hebrews is that's what it was given for the purpose of. You would see Yom Kippur and you would say, I notice some things here. There needs to be atonement for my sins. It's done through blood. But the blood of these animals isn't perfect in this because it has to be done year after year year after year, year after year. Now, if we were thinking rightly and scripturally, the author of Hebrews says what we would have been drawn to was the need of a greater sacrifice that would be once and for all, would deal with our sin, and would make us right with the Father. This is everything he's been pointing to. We've said it many times, I know. Bear with me as I say it again, but it's it's real. It's important. So we see all of this is pointing to what Christ will do. The Levitical high priest has his function, but ultimately it is fulfilled in what Melchizedekian high priest, Jesus, will do in his work. All that I think we've established. But there is something we've been dealing with for quite some time that needs to be emphasized because it's here in the text. Notice from the very beginning that what it says is when Christ did his work... He did it very much in the shadow or the picturing of what was done on Yom Kippur, but in a greater fashion. So he gave a greater sacrifice. The altar uh, of the sacrifice in the Old Testament was done, if you will, in the temple court or the tabernacle court. Christ's sacrifice was on the cross. We recognize that. But just as though the high priest must carry the blood into the holiest place and apply it to the Ark of the Covenant before God, Our author says Jesus did the same thing. He went into not the inner sanctum or not the holiest place made by hands. Look at how he words it here. But into the true one, the one that's in heaven. Now, if we were just coming to this text today without having looked at all the other texts, I'd really have to explain this in a lot of depth. Hopefully, you've seen this over the last couple of chapters, that the author of Hebrews has been arguing that the earthly tabernacle was always a model of something greater than it. He said, if you'd just been reading through the Old Testament, you would have recognized this because Moses was told, make this according to the type or model that I showed you upon the mountain. Meaning, in the Hebrew, there was something greater that was revealed to Moses and that what he was making was a model of something greater than itself. So all this is in the Hebrew, it's also in the Greek, and, and we've been looking at that in Hebrews. But what he's saying is he modeled in some way that is a mystery to us in the earthly tabernacle something like what's in the heavenly place, a sanctuary in heaven before the throne of God. And just as the Levitical high priest would enter the holiest place before the Ark of the Covenant symbolizing God's abiding presence with His people, so too Jesus entered this heavenly sanctuary, not made by hands, and in some way applied the blood of his own sacrifice there before God. Now, is this mysterious to us? Yes. That's the reason why we don't usually touch it. Most preachers don't handle it. You avoid this text because it's kind of complicated, and we don't know the fullness of it. We know in some ways what we see on Yom Kippur is a model for what Jesus does here. But he makes it clear to us, if you read the text again, that's exactly what happens. He says, therefore, based on what we looked at last week, what what did we look at last week? That there was the command that blood must cleanse, purge, and atone. That it's only through blood that it can happen. And through the blood of ordinary earthly sacrifices, the earthly tabernacle was declared clean. It not only atoned for sin, but it cleansed this place of ministry. But look how he applies this. He says, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things that are in the heavens... Well, what's the copy of the things in heaven? It's the earthly tabernacle. It's the copy. So the earthly tabernacle, the copy of the things that's in heaven, is purified with these. Well, what's the these? Earthly sacrifices. You know, this is something that just makes sense. Earthly is cleaned by earthly The earthly tabernacle is cleansed by earthly sacrifices. But he says that also tells us logically something else. The true spiritual glorious tabernacle could never be purified by earthly sacrifices. There must be something greater than earthly to cleanse the perfect. And so what he's saying is there had to be a greater sacrifice. Now, we've been dealing with all these different images of what happens on Yom Kippur. Our author is as well. The high priest offered a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people on Yom Kippur. They were atoned for. We went through the limitations of that atonement. Now Christ's sacrifice atones greater. Right? It cleanses the conscience. But also in that sacrifice the high priest did, as he sprinkled the blood, he also cleansed or purified that tabernacle from his own presence. Now, what does that mean? As he entered that as a human being, a sinner, he in some sense defiled ritually that inner sanctum. He had to purify it through the blood of the sacrifice. That's what our author's been talking about. So that brings us to a question. Why would Jesus have to do this? As he enters the heavenly tabernacle, he does not in any way defile it. So why would he need to purify that perfect sanctuary in heaven? And the answer is because of theology that we are already given in this book, in this letter. He goes into the heavenly tabernacle to make way for us. He is the forerunner. He is the trailblazer. He is the one who prepares the way that we might follow. As he goes into that heavenly tabernacle, he is ministering on behalf of sinners. Those who, as Luther said, are simultaneously righteous and sinner, right? At the same time, we are righteous in one standing. In Christ, we are righteous, but we are also sinners by our own action. And so Christ comes and purifies the heavenly place for our presence there in Him. And so, my friends, this is the point here. But what this means is that in the theology of Hebrews, it does matter if Christ actually did this. The reason I say this is there are uh, many people who say, well, this is all figurative, it's imagery. It's not necessary to think that somehow Jesus really entered the heavenly places with his own blood. In fact, there's a famous preacher who argues this. Unfortunately, though, I think they're missing the argument of Hebrews that this must be done for Christ's ministry to be able to avail. And what is more, I think in arguing that it's figurative, they're getting it backwards. Because what the author of Hebrews is really establishing is that which is done on earth is more the figurative. It's more pointing you to the reality of what occurs in heaven, what occurs in what Christ does. In other words, the high priest has a ministry, and there were real sacrifices and a real application of that blood to the Ark of the Covenant, but all that really was a type pointing forward to the true anti-type, the true reality of it, which is what Christ would do as he entered into the heavenly places. And after having offered himself as a sacrifice for sin and ministering there as our high priest, All of this is a little bit complicated. I I understand that. It's a lot easier to speak, as Paul often does in shorthand, of saying that Christ by his cross atoned for our sin. But That doesn't really fit with the fullness of the theology of the Old Testament, does it? That's what our author of Hebrews is telling us here. He's not arguing against Paul. He's just saying that Paul speaks as we do. Thank, Thank God for the cross by which we are reconciled to the Father. We're speaking here of shorthand, just like we say by the Old Testament sacrifices, The people of Israel had their sins atoned for. But I ask you this, if the high priest had slaughtered the animal on the altar, but had not taken the blood into the holiest place, would that have worked? And the answer is no, because he would not have followed the instruction of God, in which the blood must be carried into the holiest place and sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant. So again, this is the argument of Hebrews that Jesus did this exact thing. Everything that happened on Yom Kippur was anticipation of what Christ would do in His ministry. So all of that points to it being the plan of God. The plan of God. Now that brings us to our second point because He offered the perfect sacrifice. He offered the perfect sacrifice in every way. He is the perfect sacrifice. That's really what Hebrews has been arguing. It's what the Bible argues. He is the spotless Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When John saw Jesus and recognized who he is, that's what he's saying. He is the one who would offer the atoning sacrifice that was good, that was perfect. He would be the one to offer a perfect atonement. And our author will go through and explain that again. How do you know that the old sacrifices of the old system were not perfect. They had to be done over and over again. It was never enough. It didn't matter how good the high priest was. He could be better than others. That's part of the argument of Hebrews. He still had to go next year. He still had to do it over and over again. It didn't matter if he went into the Holy of Holies for three minutes or five minutes or if he could stay there seven minutes, it wouldn't make any difference next year the same sacrifices had to be done again. Now you might ask why I framed it that way. Three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes. Because the high priest can't stay there for long. He can't stay there for long. And that's going to be part of the argument our author is making here. So we recognize here that there is something different about what Christ did. It's a once and for all perfect atonement. There's no need for anything to succeed it. in what he did All is made complete. And so we need to see that. So as you look at this, as it speaks about what he did, notice immediately there's a question about whether or not it has to be repeated. If it's perfect, the author argues, it doesn't need to be repeated. Because perfect means complete, doesn't it? That's what that word means. It means complete. If it's complete, there's nothing left to do. Now, There might be other things, other applications we'd think of where we'd say, well, is something complete? Somebody brings you a a great bowl of spaghetti and they say, here it is, it's done, it's complete. And you say, not yet. You're going to put some cheese over top of it, right? Now it's complete in your eyes. But this is not what we're talking about. Christ did something that is qualitatively complete. It's done. There's no way to add to it. It is complete. And we see this in his argument because he says, listen, when you think about the high priest." entering the Holy of Holies, as the high priest of old did. He entered the earthly Holy of Holies, and Christ entered the heavenly holiest place. He says, I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking he's going to have to do it again. This will never be repeated. Is that not what he says? For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. What did the Old Testament high priest do? He went into the holiest place before the Ark of the Covenant, appearing, as it were, on behalf of the people of Israel before God. That's what he did. Now Christ appears before God in person in the heavenly place. We know this because that's where he still is. That's where he still is, ministering there in the perfect tabernacle. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But, but notice here, he's making this point. He says this, um, not that he should offer himself often, this is verse 25, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. Do you see what the author's doing here? He's saying, my concern now is if you rely too much on the Yom Kippur model, you'll think, oh, he must do this regularly. Right? He must somehow enter again and again and again. And the author says it's nonsense. It can't possibly happen. It can't possibly happen. Why? He says, for he then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Now, that's an unusual statement. We've got to think it through for just a second. What he's saying is, if Christ has to enter every time there's a need for atonement of sin, whether that's on an annual basis or a sin-by-sin basis or whatever basis it would be, then it would mean his need to do that would predate even the Old Covenant. Because Christ has given a sacrifice that is once for all time, right? So he's saying you'd have to go back to the foundation of the world, its creation, and Christ would have to come and die in the days of Adam, right, in the days of Enoch. You just go down the list. Every generation, he's coming and dying. Now, obviously what the author of Hebrews is saying is that didn't happen. That hasn't happened. It's crazy to even think that way. But maybe you ask, well, why couldn't it have happened? Why couldn't it have happened? Couldn't God do that? Couldn't God have Jesus... Uh, he's incarnated and then he, he lives his life and he dies an atoning death and he enters into the heavenly place and then he's almost as if reincarnated again and does it all over again and again and again and again. That smacks a little bit of Eastern religion anyway, doesn't it? Certainly it does. And you say, well, God certainly has the power to do that, would he not, in one sense? But the author of Hebrews is telling you, no, God would not do that. He could not do it and keep consistent with what the mission of Christ was. Why? Well, he requires us to go back just a moment to an earlier argument in Hebrews. Remember, part of the argument of Hebrews was he had to be made like his brethren. In every respect. He had to be made like his brethren. He cannot be a faithful high priest if he's not of the people. For every high priest is selected from amongst the people. He had to be made like his brethren. This means he must suffer. This means he must be tempted and tried in all ways as we are, yet without sin. That's how you balance that, right? He's tempted and tried as we are, yet he never sinned. It's how he can be a faithful high priest, having understood our weaknesses and what we go through, and yet still be the perfect availing sacrifice. Well, if he's going to be, like his, if he's going to be made like his brethren, then he can't be reincarnated over and over because we aren't. I don't care what you hear in some Eastern religion. And he makes this point. He says, for it is appointed for each man to die. And then judgment comes. In other words, you die and that's the end of your earthly journey. And Jesus is no different because he was made like his brothers. He wasn't born and dying, reborn and dying, reborn and dying. That cannot be. No, the answer is he died once. And he died for sin. And this is important to recognize because it's telling us he didn't need to be born over and over again. He's making a logical argument to dismiss this, but he's saying it isn't possible and it isn't necessary. It isn't possible and it isn't necessary. So what he says is this. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Those are glorious words. That's basically the message of Scripture, right? It's what Paul argues elsewhere, that, that Christ came into the world, right? And he died for sinners. Paul said, of whom I am chief. It's what he's saying here. What was the mission of Christ? Why was there an incarnation? Why was there a messianic mission? It's for this reason. He was appointed to die for men. But he died once. He died once. And it was sufficient. It was sufficient. Now, we could go through over and over again arguing this out. We don't need to. We looked at it last week. It was the very argument of last Sunday morning, wasn't it? That there is the requirement of blood to atone for sin. And the whole system had shown us that. All the Levitical system and sacrifices had shown us that. But it showed also that none of those sacrifices were enough. But it pointed to the one sacrifice that would be enough. That's the entire message, really, of Hebrews. And so he says there was no need for further sacrifices. The one true, availing, perfect atonement has been made. Has been made. And how do you know it? Well, where's Christ? Where's He at? He's in the holy place. He's in the holiest place of all. You see, you've got to go back a little bit, if you will, because this brings us to our third and final point, to that Yom Kippur imagery again. When Yom Kippur rolled around and people would gather at the at the temple or the tabernacle, they wanted to see this. This was the most glorious day. Because the sins of the people were atoned for. The high priest would get to enter the holiest place and stand, if you will, in the presence of God. And a sacrifice was made on behalf of the people. Can you imagine? You knew when that was happening. You knew when that was happening. People would gather outside the temple or tabernacle. People would, would almost have like a, a, a time of worship where we'd say, the high priest is going to enter soon. It's time for us to pray. It's time for us to, to be quiet. And often we can read about the fact that uh, people would wait outside to see him come out. He would come out of the inner place the holiest place. He would enter then the holy place and then he would leave the holy place and come out, if you will, into the courtyard. And people would see that. And they waited with bated breath. They waited silently to see him come out. Why? Because when they see him walk out, they know it's completed for this year. It's completed for this year. The high priest has come out. Atonement has been made for the sins of the nation. We are made right with God again in this external sense that we've been speaking about in Hebrews, but it's done. It's done. They didn't clap. They didn't cheer. It wasn't like a baseball game. But there was a, a communal, community sense of relief in seeing the high priest come out. And partly that's because there was always the fear he might drop dead in the holiest place. You know, there's always been wondered what would happen if he sinned inside the holiest place. You know, would he drop dead? They often would say, legend, I don't know if it's true or not, they would tie a rope around the high priest and he would enter in and they could pull him out if he dropped dead. So when he would leave the holiest place, there was a sense among the community of relief and joy that the job had been finished. But only for one year until we go through the whole thing again. Now what's amazing has come to our third point here on appearing a second time the author of Hebrews says, this is very much like you. Very much like you. Because our high priest went through the sacrifice. He didn't slice the throat of an animal. He offered himself up as the sacrifice on Calvary's cross. And then he was buried. And then he raised from the dead. And then he ascended into glory. And if you follow the order that the early church thought was right he is declared a high priest according to the order of melchizedek and he enters into the heavenly sanctuary and offers this offering that hebrews is speaking about that's the picture that's the picture and guess what he's still there he's still there all these years later he is still in that heavenly tabernacle that holiest place Abiding there at the right hand of the Father, enthroned there as our glorious high priest and king, interceding on behalf of his people, doing all the things that a king and high priest does. But there he is. And again, you can imagine on Yom Kippur, if it's been seven minutes, it's been eight minutes, it's been nine minutes, you begin to get a little nervous. Why hasn't the high priest come out? You stayed waiting. You stayed waiting. You stood there and waited until he would come out. And the author of Hebrews says you're no different. Look at what he says here in verse 28. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Says combining this imagery of the high priest going in and one day coming out and we'll see him. But it's not like the earthly high priest that came out to a people who were waiting for a few minutes. We're a people that have been waiting a very long time. But eagerly waiting, he says. Eagerly waiting. And notice all this is wrapped up in language that he gives us about him coming at the end of the ages. You say, well, which is it? Did he come the first advent at the end of the ages? Or this second time, will that be at the end of the ages? And I think the answer is yes, right? Because He came at the end of the ages and inaugurated the eschaton in what He accomplished. That's a weird way to think for us, but it's what the Bible says over and over again. What does it say at the very beginning of Hebrews? It says that in times past, God spoke in diverse ways to our fathers by the prophets, and He's now spoken in these last days to us by His Son. These last days, that word is eschatos. What did we just look at recently with Paul writing to Timothy? In the last days, men will be like this, from such men depart. In other words, I'm speaking of what will happen in the last days, and I'm telling you directly, Timothy, have no association with such people. So again, Paul is saying you're living in this time, in this time frame of the last days, inaugurated by what our high priest did by entering the holiest place and ruling and reigning there. There's only one thing left for him to do, and that is to come out of that holiest place to collect his people. That's what he's saying, and we are eagerly waiting for that. Now to speak for just one moment as we bring this to a close about what that means to to wait eagerly. I was reading Arthur Pink on this this week, and he said something interesting. He said, we're not waiting on another atonement. We're simply waiting on our king to return. And he said, as we wait, as the author of Hebrews says, eagerly, this is what eagerly means. First of all, a steadfast faith that it will happen. A steadfast faith that it will happen. That Christ truly is coming back again. That despite all the uncertainties in this world, we recognize this is a certainty. Christ will come again. Second of all, a love for His appearing. That should be at the heart of every believer, right? Those that love His appearing, those who long and are eager that He would return, that we would see His appearing in glory. Third, a longing for it, not just that we love it, but we long to see the day when it will happen. And lastly, a patience for it despite present discouragement. So throughout the discouragements of this world, we still look for it. We still hope in it. We still trust in it. We're patiently awaiting it. It may come tomorrow. It may not come tomorrow. But glorious will the day be when it happens, when our king returns, when he leaves that holiest place. And now his people, I think, do celebrate and do cheer. And as Paul says, meet him in the air. It's a glorious thought, a glorious thought. The same thing we were just reading about in See He Comes. What glorious words. I would encourage you, I don't know what your devotional practices are, Obviously, it's good to be in the Word of God every day. It's good to pray every day, those sorts of things. But one thing that is helpful sometimes if you've got a good hymn book is to read through those hymns and see that theology. See He comes. There's a day in which Christ is returning in glory. And my friends, for us, we ought to eagerly be waiting for that day. Amen.